Hi, welcome to War Stories from the Womb. I'm your host, Paulette Kamenica. I'm an economist and a writer and the mother of two girls. I didn't have a straight path through any part of the process of growing a family, and my experience was complicated enough that I never considered a doula, in part because I had no choices to make at the delivery. All those choices were being made by doctors. But if you look at birth over time, it used to be the case that women were always attended at their births by other women, and sometimes midwives, and these births happened at home. In the 1930s, American women moved those births into hospitals, in part to pursue effective pain relief and the allure of more safety. For a good decade, it was not actually safer to have births in hospitals, but that evened out. And over the next 50 years, the process of childbearing became more heavily medicalized, with benefits, lower maternal mortality rates, and less pain in delivery. But by the 1980s, in part to push back on the increasing rate of C-sections, doulas started to attend women in the hospital. They were trained attendants who had been to other births and could advocate for a laboring woman who was too involved in the process of birthing to be involved in all the decision-making. Studies suggest that doulas can have a very positive effect on a woman's experience, and today I'm excited to talk to a doula, both to hear about her birth experiences and her work. And in fact, in this case, my guest became a doula in large part in reaction to her first birth experience. Let's get to her story. Hi, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you tell us your name and where you're from? Yeah, my name is Keisha Graham, and I'm from Richmond, Virginia. Great. And Keisha, how many kids do you have? I have two. Two girls. Um, my oldest is 12, and my youngest is six. Oh, nice. Yeah, we're a house full of girls, so no one knows how old we are. We all lie about our <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Good. As long as you can keep it in the family, it's perfect. Exactly. <laughs> um, so before you got pregnant with your first, you must have had some idea about what pregnancy would be like. W- what were you imagining it would be? The only thing I knew about pregnancy before I gave birth was what I saw on TV. Yeah. And I had a cousin who had a baby a little bit before I did. She had two babies actually. And I had spent some time with her, like her husband was deployed. So I went to her state and helped her raise her two little kids, but I didn't see her like be pregnant. I knew kind of what raising a family was like, but pregnancy was kind of like foreign to me, except for what I saw on TV. So does that mean that you thought it'd be easy or, you know, you'd be gorgeous the whole time or (laughs) I didn't I didn't go in I'm somebody who just doesn't go in with anything with any high expectations so I thought that if there was anything that I needed to know I definitely would get it from my provider or you know my mom or my grandma would tell me or my cousins I just thought that it would be simple and like straightforward okay that's a good setup all right here we are So did you get pregnant easily the first time? Yeah, it was a oops. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad, I'm glad to meet an oops because you're the story we're all chasing, right? Everyone thinks like, oh, so good. That, that, that's true in some cases. The first Um, time was easy, but the second time was hard. The second time we were planning and it took a while. Okay. So let's focus on the first one. And you found out with like a pregnancy test, I assume like a home kit. Yep. I went to CVS. I find out that I always find out that I'm pregnant pretty early. So on my lunch break, I went and got a pregnancy test and took it and, you know, text my boyfriend, my husband now (laughs) that we were having a baby. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how was that first pregnancy? What was that like? It was pretty easy. It was pretty straightforward. I had no sickness, had no complications you know, it was the ideal pregnancy, you know, heartburn. That was the biggest thing that, and I think I threw up once. 
great. This so far, this is great. This is going yeah. great. Um, <laughs> yeah. So take us to the birth and like, are you 40 weeks? And do I myself, maybe I'm the only one, I didn't know what a contraction would feel like. So I didn't know I was having contractions when I was like, tell us that whole story. My birth story. Yeah. Is when things get different. So yeah, I thought I was going to get everything from my provider. I trusted my provider. So um, my due date was December. I think it was the 16th. And then I think I went to my 40 week appointment on the 22nd. And so they did an ultrasound and the ultrasound tech said, your fluids are a little low, but nothing to be concerned about. I went to see my OB and she was like, do you want to see your baby today? And I was like, sure. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> and never told me anything about what my cervix was doing. If my cervix was ready to be born. Okay. What does your cervix look like in labor? In early labor, your cervix starts to open or dilate and it stretches and gets thinner, which is called effacement or softening or ripening. If your doctor's testing the readiness of your cervix, it will be closer to ready when it's softer. As labor progresses, the cervix, which is about four centimeters long, thins to the width of a piece of paper and will open from the width of a blueberry to the width of a melon, about 10 centimeters, when you'll be given the go-ahead to push. If you're being induced, doctors may use drugs to ripen the cervix that try to mimic the hormones your body would produce to get that job done and the hormones cause the cervix to thin and your uterus to contract. That induction sometimes take a while and mine's ended up being two and a half days. Oh my God, that's a long time. So so did you get to like go home and get your stuff and then come back to the hospital or how did that go? Yeah, I just went right up to labor and delivery. My boyfriend was supposed to go to work that day. So we had to call out of work. I had my mom bring my stuff up and you know we thought it was gonna be pretty quick. She said, do you want to see your baby today? So I thought, you know, maybe midnight, I would at least, you know, have a child. Yeah. Today implies today. I'm with right. you. Yeah. So they get you in the hospital room and did they put you on Pitocin or what was the process? So that part, it was a blur. So I started with a um, Cervidil. I do remember I started with Cervidil and um, it was hard, just like any um, cervical ripener. It was sharp and crampy. And I wasn't given like the option of what drugs I could take or what my options were at that point. Everything was just, here you go. This is how we're going to do it. Do you want me to refill your water? Uh, so I started with Cervidil and after, um, that took a while, that took a long time. And then I had no idea. It felt like anything. Yeah. It, it feels like cramps. It feels scratchy on your cervix. Um, well, this was my experience. Yeah. It felt scratchy on my cervix and I felt it being there. And then I felt like really strong crampy sensations after it. So uncomfortable is what it sounds like. Yeah, it was terrible. And then what happens next? And so then at that point I get Pitocin and then I was on Pitocin for a while. And then after Pitocin, I, well, while I was on Pitocin, I ended up getting an epidural. And did, did your contractions start with Pitocin? Like, did that work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think with the Cervidil, it was working for a little bit, but they weren't as strong. And then Cervidil only takes you, but for, you know, so far it only like ripens the cervix. It's not going to dilate the cervix. So at that point, after I was as ripe as I was going to get, I guess, they were like, Pitocin is next. And so I started Pitocin for a while. And what was that like? Pitocin was hard, but then I got an epidural. So everything, so everything else that I felt physically was fine after that point. 
So I had a lot of introduction, like um, interventions after that point. And, you know, I kind of breezed through them. It was pretty simple. <laughs> so they give you the epidural and then, and now you're just kind of waiting, right? Until your yeah. cervix is dilated enough. Uh-huh. So the nurses come in again. Um, they're like, we'll check your cervix after X amount of time. They check it. It's not where they want it to be. So they introduce another intervention. So then after the Pitocin, I get my water broken. Actually with this birth, it wasn't like, there was no consent. It was, I'm in here. I'm going to break your water. It's done. I'm already feeling like this is a bummer because this doesn't at all sound like, do you want to see your baby today? Like it just, that, that does not, I I would not have known that's what this means. Right. It's in the baby factory. You know, we need a bed. So we're going to do all of these things so that we can open up this bed. You're not going fast enough. You're not on our time clock. So this is what we're going to do. Yikes. So, so do they, are you there for a full day before they break your water or how, how does that all go? The water was broken the next day. So I did the Cervidil and the Pitocin the first day um, yeah. and then or Pitocin overnight. And then my water was broken the next morning. And then it sounds like you labored that whole day. Yep. Still laboring the entire day. At that point, you know, they're just cranking up the Pitocin. Yeah. Just to get my contractions where they want it to be. And that's the second day. And then can you feel that or the epi- has the epidural worn off at this point or? No, it's still going. And I had a really strong epidural, one stronger than what I needed. Yeah. So I'm just lying in the bed. Like no one's telling me that I could move. Like what I know about labor now is that even with an epidural, you can move a little bit and that helps progress the labor. No, I was kind of just laying there waiting for the staff to do something next to me. I didn't that, feel like an active participant at all. Yeah, that life. doesn't sound pleasant. Good Lord. So then you're, you're now you're there for two nights. And then mm-hmm. what happens the next day? The next day is Christmas Eve. And <sighs> my doctor comes in and says, well, you have to have this baby by noon because I'm going on vacation. And so I just like look at her like there's at this point, I'm already feeling defeated. I'm yeah. already feeling like, you know, y'all are just doing stuff to me. You're not telling me what's going on. Not knowing that I could ask questions because this was my first hospital stay. It was, you know, the first time, yeah, that I've probably ever been in the hospital. I don't think I've ever like had to visit anyone in the hospital. So you don't know what questions to ask. You don't know what you can say to your doctor. You, you know, you're looking to them as the, I guess, authority figure at this point. And that person comes in and tells you that you're not working on their timeline. And it just feels so defeating. That, um, I have to say, I, that's crazy to verbalize, I'm going on vacation and you have to go. I could imagine someone thinking that, but not saying it. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, and it was Christmas Eve. And it's like, my family does Christmas Eve really big. Like, we all get together. And I just thought that I would be home with my yeah. baby. Yeah. Because you told me I would my baby today. So, yeah. So, she, that's what happened that day. She told me. I'm leaving at this time. And so she left at that time, even though we were just continuing to wait. I didn't have many other interventions at that point. They did an internal monitor right before I started pushing. Um, My baby's heart rate was decelling. um, So they gave me an internal monitor and then it was time to push. And I pushed for two hours. No, Yeah, I think I pushed for two hours, just about a vacuum was used to get my baby out. And then she was born. 
when she was born, she was brought to my chest, but I didn't want her there. I kind of was like, no, uh, <laughs> just because I wasn't feeling anything. Like I knew that after you give birth, you're supposed to feel all of these things. And it's supposed to be this like beautiful moment, but I didn't feel like that. So I, you know, told them to take her over to the warmer and, you know, I saw her from there, but I just, it just didn't feel right at that time because of everything that I went through over the last two and a half days. Yeah. And it, it from the stuff I've read, if you have Pitocin, but you aren't producing it yourself, it's a totally mm -hmm. different you're in a totally different mind space, right? If your body was producing Pitocin, you would have gotten it in your brain, which helps with the connection. But if you're getting it artificially, yeah. you're not getting that, right? So, um, right. We, um, the girl I work with likes to say it's called like the Oscar award winning speech. After you have the baby, you have like this uh, oxytocin high, this oxytocin rush. So you're like thanking everybody, you're checking fingers and toes, you're doing all of these things because, you know, oxytocin does that to us. That's why they call it like the love hormone. But yeah, Pitocin doesn't, it just brings on contractions. It just does what it's supposed to do, you know, give you contractions, stop hemorrhaging. Yeah. So it sounds like it makes sense how you were feeling, right? Like you're responding to everything that yeah. has happened over the last two and a half days, which is just disappointing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and But the baby's fine. Baby's fine. She was healthy, 12 fingers, 10 toes. She's amazing. And she, and do you, how long do you guys stay in the hospital after that? We stay there for, I think, two days. Yeah, we went home on the 26th. I nursed, you know, her. She was a great nurser. It was fine. But yeah, I'm sent home with this baby and trauma from my experience in my labor. And did you recognize it in the moment? Like, did you think, oh, this was traumatic? No, I knew it wasn't right. But I didn't think that it was traumatic until after processing my own postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety um, that I had throughout the time, like my postpartum period. Well, that sounds really hard. From the stuff I've read, it looks like one in seven women have postpartum depression. And somewhere, yeah. I think in the Cleveland Clinic, I read some article that said it's the most common condition of childbearing. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's really up there. Sure. So did you recognize like in the fourth trimester that you were um, having postpartum depression or did you just think, oh my God, this sucks? The postpartum anxiety was the thing. The postpartum depression didn't get to me as much as my postpartum anxiety did. Um, I had very bad intrusive thoughts. And I kept saying to myself, this isn't normal. This isn't normal. But I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. I had a trusted network of friends. I didn't have a professional that I could go to about it. I wanted to talk to my doctor, but I didn't like her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. So, and then we would do screenings at the pediatrician's appointment, but I didn't feel that I could talk to them about it as well. Or the things that I did say, they were like, yeah, that's just baby blues. But by the time I really realized that I had postpartum anxiety, I think I was, it, I was well out of it, which great, but also could have, it would have been beneficial if I would have got help sooner or could have recognized the sign sooner. Yeah. That's a story I hear from a lot of women. I think it's hard to recognize while you're in it because mm -hmm. you're busy being anxious or, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. So. And so did you become a doula between the first birth and the second birth or, or tell that story? Yep. I became a doula between the two. So after my birth experience, I 
went to um, births with like friends and family, just as someone who had seen it before. Cause I, when I gave birth, I was in my early twenties. I think I was 21 when I had my daughter. So by the time my group of friends like started to have their own children, I had already been there, done that. So I wanted to go with them to just help them out because I knew my experience wasn't typical or should not have been typical, but found out that my experience was, was typical. I was curious about how common it was for women to have bad birth experiences like the one Keisha described and found a Giving Voice to Mother survey published in 2019 that sought to better understand women's lived experiences giving birth. The survey didn't include a huge sample, but it was just over 2,000 people. And basically what the researchers found was that one in six women who filled out the survey were mistreated in some way during this very vulnerable period during and after birth. They reported issues like loss of autonomy, being shouted at, scolded or threatened, and being ignored, refused, or receiving no response to requests for help. And the factors associated with a lower likelihood of mistreatment. So you are more likely to have a better experience if you had a vaginal delivery, a community birth, a midwife, you were white, you'd had a baby before, and you were older than 30 years old. I knew that's that couldn't be right because that's not what I saw on TV. That's not how I saw, you know, whoever on Friends give birth. That's not how I saw like white women being treated. So I um, had a friend who told me she was like, "Well, you should be a midwife." And I was like, "Okay, that sounds cool." And I looked online and saw that that required a lot of school. And I was like, mm, "No." <laughs> so then I had a, the same friend said, "Well, you should be a doula." And then I looked at that and I was like, "Yeah." Dual work is more my speed. That's something I really want to do. Uh, so tell us, how, like, how is it? What's that like? What's the training like? And and what was your experience? And this, uh, the universe, like, really lined up for me to be a doula. After I found out what doula, what a doula was, I was working at a location that was recording podcasts for a um, doula training organization to labor, and so. We just happened to be in the same space where I was talking about it and the owner of that organization was there and she's like, yeah, you should come and do one of our trainings. And so I looked it up and they were local. So I did the three-day training to become a birth doula. It took me a while, but from the time that I decided that that was something that I wanted to do till the time that I took the training, it took me a couple of years, but I think I was going to birth. I was doing the work. And I think it's me seeing that people weren't being treated the way that they should in labor was really what gave me that momentum to say, okay, yeah, I need to do this work. I actually attended the training after my second labor. So my second labor, I changed providers. It was my third pregnancy. So with my second pregnancy, I miscarried and I miscarried pretty early, but I had changed providers pretty early with that pregnancy. And then I had a provider that was so amazing, so supportive. I remember when I did miscarry pretty early, she, you know, me and my husband come in her office and I remember like crying in her office and she, and I told her, I said something like, I know you have other patients to see today and we're leaving to get out of your hair. And she's like, no, you say and process this however you need to. And so I just knew that this was the person that needed to deliver my kids any more that I have after this. So then, um, that was my lovely. Yeah. She was amazing. I still love her. <laughs> so, we're, so this is the pregnancy where you said it was hard to get pregnant this time yep. or. Mm -hmm. So it took a while for me to get pregnant again. And, but I got pregnant again 
And well, I thought it was going to be so easy because the first two times were so easy. It was just like, yeah. they just happened. So when I was really thinking about it, like, I was like, all right, we're going to try again. It took a, it took a while. So we got pregnant a year later and yeah, had a very empowering labor. I still had lots of interventions, but I had a provider that made the time to tell me my options and my choices and give me the power that I needed back into my labor. So maybe walk through that slowly. So, so people can see the difference between the first and the, and the second. Mm Mm-hmm. I had a lot more information in the prenatal period. I was more than just my blood pressure, my fundal height, um, peeing in a cup, and then asking if I had any questions. She was very forthcoming with all of the information that I needed to know just by asking me, hey, have you taken any childbirth education classes? Do you know where to find them? These are the options that we have here in our office, but I'm sure there's some more around. You, You know, feel free to go look. She was just telling me about my baby, how my baby was growing, the things that I could do, you know, to help my baby grow, just a lot of information in the prenatal period. So I felt safe when I went into labor. I just knew that I was going to go into, into this through an induction because I was induced the last time. So I just knew that I was going to be induced, but I ended up going into labor on my own at home. And I stayed home for as long as possible, which was something that I didn't think that I could do, but my provider made me feel really comfortable in doing that. So when I got to the hospital, I was in active labor. Oh, wow. Um, really well. Yeah. <laughs> I progressed really well. And then uh, at six centimeters hit a wall. It was like, nope, I don't want to do this anymore. It's 2021. Give me all the drugs. Or it was in 2021 then. It was <laughs> 2014. Give me all the drugs. So I got yeah. an epidural at that point. It was, I, well, actually, before the epidural, I got nitrous. Um, nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide, otherwise known as laughing gas, is a form of anesthesia that you inhale. It sounds like it's a pretty weak form of anesthesia. It's usually used in pediatric dentistry to give you a sense, but it does do something and it works quickly. And that held me over for a while while the sh- I couldn't get into the shower. So I had to come out of the shower every hour or so for monitoring of the baby. I think at that time, this particular hospital didn't have wireless monitors. So I had to get out of the shower to come get monitored. And so that was very hard. Like contractions were really hard when I was out of the shower. So at one point I didn't want to keep going back and forth. So they gave me nitrous and that was a really good pain relief option. And then the tank ran out. <laughs> it was when we first got nitrous. I think I was probably like the second person in the hospital to ever use it or something. What they were telling me, it was very new to the hospital system at this time. So the tank ran out. The nurses didn't even know how to use it at first. It was a mess. Um, But it was helpful when I was able to use it. And so after it was done, I said, I'm going to get an epidural. And then I got my epidural and um, it labored beautifully after that. I don't think they needed to break my water until the very end because I had just a little bit of cervix left. My baby was OP, which is occiput posterior, um, sunny side up. Uh-huh. So my cervix didn't dilate all of the way. So she was looking up instead of looking down when she was supposed to be, you know, the other way. Does that, does so, that mean a C-section or no? No, sometimes it okay. means longer labors. And then okay. in my case, it meant that my cervix didn't dilate completely. Uh-huh. It dilated almost completely. So she broke my water to help try and get it to dilate more. It was like, like a half a centimeter, I guess, of dilation that needed to happen before they wanted me to start pushing. 
so that she broke my water because of that. And I was like, okay with that because she said either we can wait a while or we can break your water. She gave me both options. I was like, no, I'm, I'm tired. <laughs> so let's go ahead and do this. She broke it. We still waited a while. Nothing happened. So we kind of just pushed past that little bit of dilation, which was fine. And my, the second kid was born in 15 minutes. Oh, wow. Um, well done. Yeah. It was like three pushes, 15 minutes is very quick. Yeah. So when it was time for me to push, I remember my doctor sitting on my bed and saying, you know, all right, go ahead and push. And I was like, well, don't you want me to put my legs in the stirrups? Don't you want me to do all of these things? And she's like, no, just do whatever you want. And that was just so empowering. It was just the greatest moment ever. So I had a birth that was traumatic, but I also had one that was so rewarding and empowering. And I knew this is the type of birth that everyone should have. That does sound like a storybook kind of birth, right? Where, where you're making all the choices. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, right. That's amazing. That I see on TV. Yeah, that's amazing. So now tell us, I was saying to you before, when I was having children, I, I don't know if doulas were a thing or not, but I, I was not aware of them. So give us a sense of what you're doing for other people. Cause I can't, I can't really imagine doctors kind of backing down if they're, if they're sort of not approaching appropriately. Yeah. Advocacy. Advocacy work is what I do. It was one of the things that led me to doula work was being able to, you know, let people know of their options and their choices when they feel that they don't have any or letting them know that it's okay to ask questions. Um, I never want to speak for anyone, but just saying, you know, maybe there is another way. Just ask because you can ask questions to your doctor and that's okay. And they should give you that information. Consent is very important in this work as well, making sure that everyone has informed consent for everything that happens throughout pregnancy, labor, delivery, and in their body and with their baby afterwards. Doula work is a lot of educational support in the beginning, especially, I mean, midwifery care. When you're in the midwifery program, midwifery model care, you do tend to get a little bit more information than those who birth with an OB. But yeah, for those with an OB, but or actually anyone in general really is just giving them evidence-based up-to-date information on whatever it is that they are going through in their pregnancy journey at that time, or that you may think that they need to know. It's anticipating folks' needs as well. I'm guessing that you're, you really shine in the labor and delivery room, right? Because that's when I think for sure for your first birth, most women don't understand the degree to which they'll be compromised when, when everything's going down, right? Like mm -hmm. all of a sudden you can't really speak for yourself because you're in excruciating pain or whatever. You don't know what's going on. So is it the case that like you're having the talk with the mother or, and then she's communicating to the doctor or like, how does that all work? We all talk together. Like um, I have no problem asking questions while providers are in the room where, you know, sometimes people might want a little bit of privacy or something like that to have conversations. I don't know. It we talk prenatally about some common complications that may come up and how to address them, giving you all of the tools that you need prenatally to ask the right questions if something comes up and then reminding you that you have those options to ask questions in the moment. You can always ask, what are the benefits to this? What are the risks? Are there any alternatives? And then also mostly advocating for more time for people. So pressing for more time for people is an interesting issue. Lots and lots of interventions are predicated on the idea of, quote, failure to progress. But how long is labor supposed to take? 
That answer seems to depend on which country you're giving birth in. In the US, the average length of labor from zero to 10 centimeters dilation is estimated to be 14 hours for first time mothers and eight hours for mothers who've done it before, according to a study done in 1955. The problem with these timelines is that they lead to interventions. In particular, they lead to cesareans for first time mothers. But research suggests that labor takes longer in women giving birth now as opposed to women in 1955, in part because women are older and often heavier than they were in 1955. In 2012, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists argued to adopt a new standard. Very rarely are people rushed into an emergency C-section where they're pulling cords out of the wall and then rushing them back to the OR. Anything outside of that, I'm always advocating for people to ask for just a few moments for them and their partner to talk about what's going on or to process what they just heard. So that way they're not moving into the next steps with any doubt or worries which they may still have, but at least they have some a little bit of time to process everything that's going on and they can confidently move into that next step. And you talked a little bit about your birth versus what you had seen for white women. I interviewed a woman at the Center for American Progress and she works on maternal health issues among other things. And she was saying that for black women, the ways that racism finds its way into the delivery room are not always overt. So it's not always like an obvious thing, like, and I don't know that this woman was being racist with you, but that's an outrageous thing to say to a laboring woman, like, you know, Uh um, so I don't know what, I don't know what the, was driving that her treatment of you, but, and I wasn't there, but, but I'm imagining most of the circumstances are not quite as upfront as that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, biases that. Yeah. that we face, that people of color face when um, they are in labor. It's a lot of, I don't want to say the same type of stereotype, only because I am used to it. And I, because it's lived experience for me, so I know what to look out for. But it is a lot of not ignoring or ignoring folks of color, their pain or their pain tolerance or thinking that they are exaggerating when they're saying that something is wrong with them. It is a lot of ignoring their needs and, you know, attending to the needs of someone else um, ahead of them or something like, or, or white person's need, I should say, versus a person of color. So in that instance, you can go and like advocate for them and say, no, she really needs another epidural or whatever, or like more... Yeah. And luckily, I mean, the good thing about being able as a doula, being able to see both sides and being able to be in the room for all types of people is that I can say, well, if they if I have a nurse or a provider that says, oh, this isn't how we do things here, I can easily go back to experience that I've had with a a white person and say, well, actually, this is how you did things, how you've done it before at this day and time look at my notes, (laughs) but yeah, that seems super, that seems super powerful. That's a great, great leverage to have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice being able to advocate for folks in that way to say, you know, if they say this isn't how they do things, I know that they do them the opposite way. I can imagine that is an unbelievably frustrating thing to hear when you're in the mix and your client is in pain and needs something, right? Yeah. Uh, That sounds like a lot. So how long have you been a doula for? So I've been professionally trained as a doula for four years, but I've been doing the work way before that. Um, That's cool. So I bet you've been to a lot of births. Yeah, I think um, by the end of this year, I will be probably well over 100 births. 
Wow. That seems like life affirming work. Yeah. It's like really pretty nice. exciting, right? It, it's always exciting. It's always something new. And I'm imagining uh, again, when I was having kids, there was no skin to skin. There was no delayed cord clamping and that sort of stuff. So it's probably cool to be in a field where there's constantly new and different things coming up. It's nice to be in a field where we're bringing things back to the family and out of the medical complex, out of the doctor's hands and bringing it back to the family, like the skin to skin, the delayed cord clamping. I even advocate for fathers to try and catch their babies. We talk a lot about that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because I mean, they, I mean, my job is to make sure that partners, I shouldn't say fathers, but partners are active participants in their labor as well. Like if this is a family event and not something that doctors have to oversee completely. That's super cool. And I know that my husband had no idea what to do. I mean, I had C-sections, but he was still like, I'm going to go hide in that corner and you call me if you need me. Right. (laughs) So it's nice to have someone who knows what she's doing to kind of guide that process. I think that's my biggest, another one of my biggest roles is normalizing the process as well so that partners don't have to worry so much about advocating and, you know, answering all the questions and knowing all of the things while the birthing person is in pain and going through their stuff. So I'm able to be like, oh, that's normal. Yeah, she's throwing up. That's okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not the end of the world. Don't mind her. Yes, that's very funny. (laughs) I thought that most states don't allow insurance to cover doula services. Is that your experience? Yeah. In Virginia, we don't take, like the insurance companies don't cover doula services. There are current bills um, being passed or laws going into effect that where doulas can be covered by Medicaid, but I haven't seen much where doulas are covered through private insurance. A lot of folks can use their HSA or their FSA account to pay for doula services. Okay, that's useful. Yeah, medical insurance. That's super cool. That is very cool work. And it's a totally interesting way to go into it, right? Mm -hmm. To have had your experience and think like, I can fix this. Right. Yeah. God, how rewarding. That's cool. So how do people find you if they're in the Virginia area? I'm assuming you don't work outside Virginia. I do virtual work anywhere. Yeah. I mean, this pandemic has opened up so many lanes for doula work. Since a lot of hospitals were closing their doors to doulas, we still needed an avenue to get in to help families. So we do virtual work. So I do virtual doula work for anyone anywhere (laughs) if they need a doula. But if you are in Virginia and you're looking for someone local, they can find me on Instagram at Keisha Does Work or on doulamatch.net and under my name, Keisha Graham. So that's awesome. And I'll put that on the show notes so that people can find it. What's it like to be virtual for a birth? Do they have you in the labor and delivery room, like on a phone? Yeah. I mean, FaceTime, or we can check in every now and then where they can ask questions. It's really tailored to whatever it is that you need. But yeah, I mean, I've done like FaceTime where I'm just like on a tripod (laughs) And I'm like, you got it. (laughs) You can do it. You know, it's a lot of coaching at that point, but also reminding um, families that, you know, they have choices, they have options, they have power in their experience and they should wield that power. That's amazing. And I can imagine if I were in the circumstance where I actually had to push a baby out, I would probably trust you more than my husband because you've seen it before, right? Like, what does he know? How does he know I can do it? He's got no idea. So that's super cool. That's an awesome job. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I love it. It's really amazing. 
Um, I love I love seeing families work together. I am of the same like mindset that you are. Like, <laughs> let the doula handle it. Um, but <laughs> a lot of a lot of partners really get this like power inside of them that they don't know is there when they're faced with their partner going through something really hard. That I really like to see. Yeah, I like the best person when I just stand in the corner and get to watch families do their thing. That's amazing. What's your ideas about C-sections? And like the stuff I've read is that, you know, there's obviously it's a serious surgery and you're much more at risk to have some kind of complication if you go through a C-section. And the other thing I saw that was kind of damning said, the biggest predictor of whether you'll have a C-section or not is the hospital you're in, mm-hmm. as, as opposed to your medical condition. Mm-hmm. So that suggests something wacky is going on. What are you, what's your experience with C-sections? Do you try to turn them around or how are you, how do you deal with that? I mean, I'm not there to give anybody medical advice. Okay. So um, if the doctors are calling for a C-section, you know, the only thing that I am able to do within my scope is to have the family ask questions and then help them come up with the questions to ask to see if it's a true emergency or if they have a little bit more time. My own opinion on C-sections is that they are here for a reason, but with the current rates of C-sections and knowing that there isn't this big decline with mortality mortality and morbidity, then we still know that C-sections are being overutilized. Yep. From what I see, sometimes I feel, again, me as someone who only took a few day training and has attended a limited amount of births, feel that sometimes, you know, maybe things just need a little bit more time. Sometimes I do feel that they are a little bit rushed. But, you know, again, I'm not the medical professional, so... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I just, you hear these stories where like the baby's not in distress or anything mm-hmm. and they yeah. go to C-section and you're, and like, and neither's the mother. So if that's why provider choice is so important, that's why place of birth is so important. There is a thing of birth culture, like your hospital is going to have their own individual birth culture culture. So it is important to talk to families who have birth at the place of birth where you're going to birth and have been with the provider that you're going to see when weighing those options about C-sections. And I think it's important for everyone to talk about C-sections because we don't know who is going to need a surgical birth versus, you know, a vaginal one. I assume there's no like scorecard where you could see kind of what your hospital does, or is there some way to evaluate the, the environment you're about to go into? Some states have C-section rates listed on their state website, or you can find it on the hospital website. But sometimes that information, if it looks kind of unfavorable, is kind of hush-hush. So you kind of have to scour the internet and the message boards to find out that information. But, But usually someone is keeping track of that. So it's out there. It is out there, but sometimes it's outdated. I think for, in my state, I think some of the information is a couple of years old. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Well, that's also a good idea. So reason number 87 to get a doula is to be made aware of all these things that you should be checking on. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, Keisha, thanks so much for coming on. I totally appreciate your time and your story. Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to like and subscribe. And thanks again to Keisha for sharing her personal story and talking to us about her experience with doula work. We'll be back soon with another inspiring story about the adventures of pregnancy, birth, and the postpartum experience.